0: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
1: Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress, and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi everybody,
2: Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. As travel begins to rebound, our travel patterns are preferences. Our timing, and yes, even our budget, may have changed radically. A global disruptive event may actually have a silver lining. I'll speak with Dylan Thuris, the founder of one of my favorite books, Atlas Obscura, to talk about these changing and surprising trends and how they'll affect you. And then, speaking of habits, I'll talk with Kwabina Dankor. What a remarkable story he has. Think about it. He came to this country as an immigrant from Ghana. And when he landed in New York, he did what so many immigrants do. He started driving a yellow cab. But he didn't just drive the cab. He took detailed notes about his passenger's behavior. And what's he doing now? He's an assistant professor of marketing at the Stanford Business School. And guess what? He's ready to report on his own taxi confessions.
1: First up, Dylan Thuris. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, yours is one of those books, uh, and, I, and I say this, but I have one other book that I feel the same way about. It's a book that came out years ago, still being printed somewhere, called An Incomplete Education. Hmm. And I keep it by my bed, and every once in a while, right before I go to bed, I just open it up to a random page. And I go. I had no idea, <laughs> and 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 that's what your book is. But it's worldly. It's a it's about the entire world, and that's why it's called Atlas Obscure. It's about stuff you did not know, and uh, as we are emerging, hopefully from uh, from COVID, as more of us are starting to travel and starting to do different kinds of travel, some of it prompted by the by the pandemic, some of it prompted by an old bucket list we never exercised your book comes into play because, let's face it, you want to know what's going on? Weird, wonderful, crazy? That's the book. So let's talk about this brave new world in 2022 and what you're finding out there as we're starting to travel again.
3: Well, I should mention that that actually we recently, this year in fall, we released another book. Uh, we released a book called Gastro Obscura. We know we talked we, we talked about it, yeah. Right, and so it's a similar it's a similar kind of approach, but th- this time through the lens of, of food and drink. And both books, uh, Atlas Obscura and Gastro Obscura, you know, one of their main focuses is the idea that you don't have to go halfway around the world to find something fascinating, something unusual, something with a great uh, story and a, and a great experience. And so, I think that's been you know, especially true with travel over the last two years, you can't in a lot of cases get on a plane and go uh, around the world or, or you just don't want to. And so it's forced people to to realize often how much there is to be explored within 50 miles or 100 miles of their house. And, and I in some ways, I think that's been a really positive thing.
2: I agree with you. It's, it's actually forced us right. Beware the law of unintended consequences yeah. to, to rediscover our own country.
3: It's right, yeah, and and a huge, you know, we saw especially in 2020, although I think it's kept going to a decent extent in 2021. The, you know, the the shift towards right domestic travel, and that was true all over the world. Just people were staying within the borders of their own country, and car, you know, road trip travel, and and nature oriented travel. So jumping in in the car, going for you know a long weekend, and going and visiting. Obviously, there was a huge amount of pressure on the on the national parks, which have a very big reputation. But I was glad to see a lot of people visiting their own local state parks, which often don't get the same appreciation, but can be real underappreciated gems. you and know what? Like Ten thousand of them across the country. So you are, yeah. you
2: are so right you know, you're so right. I mean, everyone wants to go to Yellowstone. Everyone wants to go to Yosemite. But if you go about twenty miles from Yosemite, you're in a California state park, that's just as cool. And that's right. And it's not as crowded. Um, I mean, I was and I was in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, and in Tulsa alone they have fifty different parks in Tulsa, and <laughs> and, and people don't know it. You know, it's cool. Yeah, and I, I just that is that's often.
3: It's it's funny because often the thing that you have heard of the most, you know, Yellowstone or whatever it is, the Eiffel Tower, that often isn't the best travel experience you have. In fact, there's usually an almost inverse quality because the more famous something is, often the more you're jockeying with other tourists, with crowds, with lines of cars. It's not a very inspiring experience, natural world experience to sort of be stuck in your car looking for parking. And that's why it's sort of really, it's worthwhile for people to give themselves permission. And I think that's somewhat uh, what happened during the pandemic, is that people gave themselves permission to explore stuff they hadn't heard of before, or was maybe a little less familiar. And I think often people found that that was where they are having really magical travel experiences.
2: I, I'm going to tell you my metric for having a great travel experience. It's a three-parter. Here it comes. Okay. <laughs> Here You'll like it. No gift shop. Yeah. No TripAdvisor logos. Uh-huh. And no tour buses. If I get the trifecta there, I'm, I'm going. Right? If, if I can make sure I got all three of those things covered, I got to go check it out.
3: I think that's a good rule of thumb. You'll find some interesting places that way for
2: sure. And with all due respect to TripAdvisor, I'm just saying if I see one more of those logos, I'm like, please stop. And I understand why, but they, they, you have it. So as we enter 2022, you know, we're now in our second month coming in. I mean, what are you finding out there now that, that is trendy in this, under the same criteria that you did the book?
3: I, I will say this, I think an interesting thing is happening. I think people are going to return, you know, we, we run a travel business. So we take people all over the world. Normally we did, you know, in 2019, we ran a hundred trips all over the world, small groups, 12 people or so. And obviously that went basically to zero in, in 2020 and it stayed very low in 2021, but we have booked more trips into 2022 than we have ever booked in an entire year before. Uh, Because people have been delaying their big dream trips uh, and they, I think, are dedicated to doing them this year. I think most people feel like they have been vaccinated, they have been boosted. At this point, I think people are sort of ready to undertake uh, larger trips and we're seeing it. People are booking trips. There's still a theme of nature. People are looking at places like Patagonia, or the Scottish Highlands, uh, but I, I'm seeing people sort of say, "Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take that dream trip. We're going to be ambitious." And so, you know, knock on wood, that this is the year that that can really happen. It feels like that's the case, but you know, I'm seeing people are ready. They are just ready to take that that you know sort of lifelong trip that they've maybe been holding out on you know for a decade, but the pandemic suddenly made it sort of clear, you know. You you don't want to wait forever. So you're not sure when you're going to be able to do it. So I think people are going to try and do that stuff now.
2: I'll I'll suggest another possible theme that may be driving this, and I call it the Last Supper mentality. Uh, People looking at at travel saying, you know what? I don't want to just go with you. I want to bring the whole family. I want to bring my extended family because if we don't go now, we're never going to go. The Last Supper mentality. And that's what I'm saying.
3: I think that's exactly right. That's exactly it. People are they want to be with their friends and their family and i think a lot of early pandemic travel you know on my own travel was like that we, we did a road trip out to minnesota and stayed uh, in an airbnb for a month um but people are now ready to take bigger trips and interestingly because of the cutting of the cord between work and the workplace we there is a shift happening in travel right now that we can barely even comprehend it is as big as I, I talked to Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb the other day, and we were talking about this. You know, this is as big as the change to sort of cheap commercial flights. Uh, it, it's, as, it's as big a change in the trajectory of what travel means as maybe there's ever been. Because I think as evidenced by me going and spending a month in, in another state and staying in a, in a, in a rental it just blurs the lines between travel, vacation, sort of uh, live abroad. I think you are going to see people starting to do this with their families, people who can, who have that kind of uh, portable you know, work, doing this with their families for a month at a time, maybe months at a time. Uh, I just think you're going to see a real change. In how people think about what is "quote unquote" a vacation, because it's kind of like why go for two weeks right. with all the hassle of bringing your kids and everything if you can go for two months? And I, 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 I feel that this is going to be a kind of fundamental shift that's going to last for you know forever potentially.
2: What we were just talking about is what what Dylan was talking about the fundamental shift in the work vacation. Dimension, if you will, or the equation, and it's changing HR policies at companies radically. More and more companies are getting rid of paid time off. More and more companies are getting rid of comp days or sick days. They're basically saying you have unlimited free vacation time as long as you get your work done. Because nobody's punching a clock, nobody's coming into the office, nobody's supervising those people. the the The, the role of office manager is becoming extinct, and people are realizing that lifestyle can be combined in an effective, efficient way in many cases with work style.
3: Yeah, I think you'll see two kinds of, of things. I think in families, families with young kids are still sort of tied to the school calendar, right? So I think you'll see more families doing whole summers away and maybe renting out their own house while they go to rent someone else's house somewhere else. I, I, so I think, you know, in some ways, there's still school schedules still dictate a lot of this. But for younger people, you know, my company out Subskira. Pretty early in the pandemic, we went fully remote. We had an office in Brooklyn and we decided, you know what, we're a company that really makes sense to be fully remote. And so when we did this, a couple of our younger employees, both in their kind of mid-20s, immediately moved to Hawaii and then later to Portugal for a while. And, you know, that meant that sometimes they had to be up really early for morning meetings. But but otherwise, it was pretty seamless. And so I think if you're in your 20s, and you're sort of trying to make the decision between do I want to see the world? Or do I want to start a career? I don't know that you have to make that decision in the same way you can find work that might let you do both. And heck, if you travel to anywhere really in Central or South America, you don't even need to worry about time zones that much. So I I just think it opens up a huge set of possibilities for a certain category of work. Obviously, there is a ton of work, service work, frontline work that does not offer this same flexibility. And I I think that actually will be a, um, you know, it's going to be a a kind of a a point, an issue, uh, because I think it sort of represents a furthering of certain aspects of of inequality in our kind of work life in, in the United States. So, that's a whole yeah. other
2: topic. Oh no, it's a whole other topic, but it has to be addressed because it's one thing to say that, you know, work and travel do not have to be mutually exclusive. However, in the service industry, in travel and tourism, in hospitality, there not only has been a quantum shift, there's been a quantum of an escape, a resignation and you know you have 10% of the workforce in the hospitality and tourism industry that may not be coming back and it's one thing to say okay i'm a writer i can write from anywhere i'm a broadcaster i can i can broadcast from anywhere but and you could also say i'm a hotel housekeeper i could be a hotel housekeeper from anywhere but then again there's the cost of living yeah. and they are the basic salary issues that came came to the forefront during the pandemic and if those aren't addressed then you're going to have to redefine hotel service
3: that's right and i think sort of that mobility to do that sort of work from anywhere you know it's it's a real kind of white collar work thing and so i think you know i think everyone is going to be looking for this in some ways so i think there will be aspects of work policy across the board where flexibility uh is is highly valued there's some stat that i read about like some 80 percent of people looking for a new job in the kind of uh you know where work where remote work is possible are prioritizing remote work, and some of them are not even looking for jobs that do not, not let them do remote work. And I just think this is going to be the case going forward. But yeah, I, I mean, sort of addressing the 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 inequality and the and the kind of mobility and, and flexibility of huge sectors of the workforce is going to be important because it only kind of exacerbates some of this uh, some of the, the inequalities we've seen, you know, so so highlighted during the pandemic. Yeah.
2: Dylan, let me give you the one thing that concerns me throughout this. And it's, it's it's almost inevitable. And that is, by the way, it's in the news gathering world. It's in the creative world. It's the collaborative nature of ideas. And it's in the idea that you can go down the hall, stick your head in somebody's office, say, you know, we really ought to be doing something like this. Or what do you think about that? The water cooler conversations have evaporated because nobody's in an office and nobody's having those conversations. And Zoom cannot give you spontaneity. It can't. Um, And so my concern is half the stories that I'm interested in, who do I talk to about it? Right. I mean, I mean, I can't schedule a zoom call for it. It doesn't work that way. And so I'm worried about the fact that yes, you can work from anywhere uh, and people are, but who are you going to personally interact with that to find that common ground that allows you on a creative level to do even better work? Yeah. So this is going to sound like
3: really almost like I'm, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I think what you'll ultimately have is both a premium on a certain kind of remote flexibility and a premium, uh, especially at sort of jobs where people have a lot of choice in their employer, a premium on uh, good in-person work experiences that actually sort of having access to both is going to end up being kind of the gold standard and that we don't really know how to hybrid work yet. I think. know atlas obscura is trying to solve these things kind of in real time and i mean i do think that real life get togethers we've had an uh we've been able to have a you know all staff where everyone got together at the twa flight center uh in jfk which was like amazing it's you know old uh 60s super modern space and it was really it was incredible and i could see okay, if we're able to do this a couple of times a year and individual teams are able to get together themselves a couple of times a year, and basically you spend what you would have spent on rent in various highly focused creative sessions, you might actually sort of get the best of both worlds. There are things creatively that cannot be done or work are so much harder to do in a remote environment. And I just think we haven't quite established the best practices that kind of mixes these things, because I, I think that that's what we'll end up with. We're going to end up with a mix of these worlds. And there will just be trade offs on both on both sides, you know, because I, I, I also think that going back to a work environment where you are bound by your Locality. You know, when we had an office in Brooklyn, it meant that we sort of could only hire folks in the kind of media class who ended up coming to New York and could afford to. And it just it it meant there was limits to that in a lot of ways. And being able to hire an incredible marketer who lives in a tiny town in rural Pennsylvania or to hire people in, you know, in Denver or in Canada. Like this isn't this is a change that is more profound than simply people working in their Pajamas. It 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 and in ways both good and bad. And you know neither of us are saying anything that I think hasn't been said. But I, I think everyone is still trying to understand what it means, what the big ramifications are on on both the positive and negative. And
2: hey, look, I'm 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 still trying to understand pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, it does change the dynamic. It does change the dynamic of the workplace. It does change the dynamic of your talent pool. It does change the dynamic of when you get together. How many times have I seen in the last maybe six months, uh, conventions or meetings saying we're hybrid, so you don't have to come? Guess what? I go because I, I I miss that. I miss that. But the question is, where am I coming from? I could be coming from Portugal. I could be coming from Wyoming. It's not a question that the meeting has to be happen in the city in which I live.
3: That's right. Yeah. I think and I think there'll be, you know, I'm hoping that 2022 is it, everyone is so hungry for human experience. Like I just want to go be with a bunch of people. Like I, so I I think you'll see that. I think we are starved for it. So it's not anyone who's suggesting that we're all, you know, ready to just spend our lives in a digital bubble is deeply mistaken about the value of existing in the world. Uh but I think we're going to end up doing a little bit of both you know like we're on a zoom call right now it makes you interviewing people relatively easy Uh, that said it's not the same as gathering field tape or interviewing people in person at an event where they're excited it's just there's different kind of qualities of each experience
2: and hopefully we'll get to some midpoint where we get the best of both, it will. Ch- it, but it will also change our travel dynamics, yeah. Uh, because how many, how many the people who used to do twenty trips a year might only do ten, um, and that changes the whole algorithm of business travel and how airlines are structuring their own business model.
3: Yeah, I think business travel might be one of the <laughs> one of the the losers in this. It'll come back, but I think a lot of businesses have looked especially really big enterprise businesses said oh, we were spending 50 million dollars on sending people around the world our, our salespeople especially and hey we switched to doing that remotely during the pandemic and it didn't really affect the bottom line that much and so i i you know that whether that can continue forever probably not there are values to that kind of networking and and you know in-person kind of conference experience but do I think it's going to be back at its full scale levels business travel? I don't know, I'm a little skeptical.
2: Although, you know, you only need one Fortune 500 uh, sales team to say we really want to go out and meet our clients and nobody else in their competitors wants to have a competitive disadvantage, they're going to they're they're going to be jumping on the plane too.
3: You may be right. You may be right. Maybe it's a kind of arms race thing and as soon as one one organization is doing it. Everyone feels like they got
2: to. It's sort of like the nuclear deterrent in reverse. <laughs> it is. But but let's go back to one cultural thing here, Dylan. People don't just want to travel. They don't just have to travel. They don't just think about travel. They need to travel. Right. It's, it's what you were talking about. And at a certain point, that's got to be exercised.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I'll say this, I mean, maybe this puts me on the wrong side of kind of where human experience is heading, but I, I just fundamentally believe we are mostly dissatisfied with our digital lives, right? Like most of us feel at this point, we are, the, the, the shine is off <laughs> of Zoom meetings and social media and all of these things, and, and in fact, we are... Not just hungry for real-world experience because of the pandemic, but we need it to live full, rich lives. You're right. And Atlas is a company that was born on the internet, but exists to get people into the world. And, and I think, n- all metaverses aside, there is no, there is never, nothing replaces being in the world.
2: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
4: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that.
2: My thanks to Dylan. It's one thing to publish a scholarly research paper. It's another thing when you know the subject all too well. That's the case with Pabina Donkor, an immigrant to the U.S. from Ghana. He drove a yellow cab in New York for a couple of years, and that experience became at least one thesis for him, literally. And now that he's a professor at Stanford Business School, some very revealing stuff about travel behavior inside a New York City cab and what it tells us about us. Professor, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me.
2: So let's talk about this. Let's talk about your story for a minute. You're from Ghana. You, you, That's you, correct. You you end up in the United States. And like so many people, uh, and by the way, the best conversations I ever have in New York are with cab drivers because the first question I ask is, what country are you from? And then we discuss their country and we discuss their politics and we discuss their presidents and we discuss their economics and their families and what brought them there. But for so many people, it's how you earn a living when you first get to this country because those jobs, at least even in the age of Uber, are still more or less available. So, how long did you drive a cab for?
5: I drove uh, from 2009 till 2013.
2: So, four, th- four years. Wow. Four years. And you survived. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and by the way, by the way, forgetting studying of tipping, I hope you kept a diary about everything else that happened in your cab.
5: Well, I did. For for most of them were quite dramatic, given that it was New York City. So it's actually etched in my brain.
2: <laughs> I mean the the ongoing drama that never stops, right? That's right. But then there comes the concept, which by the way goes beyond just taxis, of the concept of tipping. Because if you if you look at the at the derivation of the word tip, it goes back to England, and it meant to ensure promptness, I believe. Um, that's right. All right. So that's not really why you tip a cab driver in New York, at least in my experience. You tip a cab driver in New York because you realize they're not getting enough money. And, and you, and, you know, I don't even look, I'm one of those guys who doesn't even think about it. I always hit 20% and I get out of the cab. But in your study, that's not always the case, right?
5: That's right. That's right. Although most people are like you, they 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 do uh, tap the twenty percent button and then get out of the cab. So you have almost, um, I believe, forty-five to fifty percent of passengers actually uh, choosing the fifty percent option.
2: Now I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna tell you about my wife now. Let me tell you what she does because when she's paying and I'm sitting next to her, she overrides the system. Because if you want to tip a different amount, you got to override the system. That's right right? And she overrides the system and almost always tips less. I go, why? She said, well, did he open the door for me? No. Uh, did he open the trunk and carry my bags? No. All he did was drive me from A to B, right? So why am I tipping him? He, that's, he, he did what he was supposed to do. I said, oh, come on. So we have this ongoing argument, right? But as yes. you say in your study, she's in the minority.
5: That's right. Uh, in fact, your your wife would represent some someone who, who, who would, I guess- uh, being a spectrum of going along with what neoclassical economics would would suggest, uh, why people tip, right? Because you know I'm tipping because I expect to get a better uh, a service. So she would fall uh, in that in that in that particular category. But most people actually don't fall in that ca- category.
2: Well, I'm going to tell you my great cab story. Here's my great cab story. It was uh, in the '90s. Uh, I was staying at a hotel in New York. It was a Friday afternoon. It was four o'clock in the afternoon and I had to get to the airport and I was so late for a six o'clock flight and I'm leaving at four on a Friday afternoon. So you already know this is suicidal. And I run out of the I run out of the, uh, of the hotel, there's a cab, I jump in, and because I'm from New York and I think I know everything, I say to him, All right, here's what I want you to do. Go to Madison Avenue to ninety six, cut across ninety sixth street to the drive, take the drive to the van Wyck, and he looks at me and he goes, What time your flight? And I said, my flight's at six o'clock. He said, I tell you what, we go better way. I said, excuse me, man, I'm from New York. He said, okay, I tell you what. I said, what? He said, we go my way and you'll be there in 18 minutes. And if you're not there in 18 minutes, ride is free. What do you say? And I said, you're on. Now, I'm bo- listen to this. I'm born and raised in New York. That's right. Live there all my life. And all of a sudden, I go on a ride through alleyways and nooks and crannies and corners and underground tunnels that I've never seen in my entire life. Here's the end of the story. 17 minutes and 30 seconds later, we pull up a Terminal 8 at JFK, and I look at this guy, and he says, so what do you think? I said, what do I think? <laughs> What's your name? He goes, William. I said, William what? He goes, William Magala. I said, William, where are you from? Alexandria, Egypt. I said, William, is this your medallion? Do you own this cab? He goes, Yes. I said, okay, William, how'd you like to be my driver in New York from now on? And, and remember, he's a yellow cab driver. So yeah. he gave me his cell phone number. And every time I came to New York, which was like once a week, we'd have secret places to meet because he was a yellow cab. He couldn't cruise, right? So we'd have secret places to meet. He'd pick me up. He never gave me, he never turned the meter on. Once a month, he told me how much I owed him. I gave him a check. My, he drove all my colleagues at that point at NBC. He drove my mom, who didn't like the shirts he wore, so she bought him shirts. Um, and wait, the story has a wonderful ending. Uh, in fact, it's not even over yet. But, the, but at one point, he said to me, you know my cousin Billy, who sometimes drives you when I can't? I said, yeah. He says, well, he's getting married in July, and we'd like to invite you to the wedding. Oh. So I said, great. What's the date? I write it down. I don't think about it again. It's now the 1st of July, and, and he, I'm in the cab, and he goes, so you're coming to the wedding, right? And I go, when is it again? He said, like the 27th. I said, sure, I'm there. Count me in. I forgot to ask. The wedding was in Alexandria, Egypt. <laughs> 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 wait, wait. I went. Wow. I went. And wow, this is the, good and for look, you. and, and you'll appreciate this because you're from Ghana. You will know exactly what I'm saying. In New Jersey and in New York, he drove a cab. In Alexandria, he was a god. He was That's a right. god. And when I landed in Alexandria, I was met by 40 people. I was wildly entertained. Party. I, I went to an Egyptian Coptic wedding that started at 10 o'clock at night in King Farouk's Palace. I was the only one there not going, lo, 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 but you know what? <laughs> I had the best time when the wedding was over. We went looking for rice pudding at the bakeries at 3 in the morning. And I have to tell you... Uh, he is still driving, and I still talk to him. He's now in the Egyptian cotton business, but his brother's still drive. But all I'm telling you is, it's those conversations that you have uh, based on the fact that these people work so hard, and, and up against a lot of, of challenges, especially in the world of Uber and Lyft. This is true. So when it comes to tipping, which comes back to what you're studying now, what was the biggest surprise in your study about what people tip how much they tip and why well well the, the one of them wasn't surprising but it was
5: essentially confirming what 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 my experience had been which was for every passenger that i had um almost over 90 percent of them actually did give me a tip at the end of the ride um, but but what was even surprising is if i had had even a negative interaction with a passenger Uh, That didn't stop them from tipping. And if they did tip, they didn't even leave um, a terrible tip, so to speak. Right. Um, And and the data actually confirms this. Over 97 percent of passengers actually leave a tip um, before leaving the cab. Right. And, and, And so here I am from Ghana where tipping is not something that people do. And then people pay for the fare and then they're giving me extra money. So, so, so that was quite uh, uh, interesting, and then also the data confirms confirms this, and that's where I guess the genesis of this particular research uh, um, comes from.
2: And of course, if you start deconstructing the fare, the tip is based on the fare, which also includes taxes, tolls, and uh, extra surcharges. So you're that's actually right. paying twenty percent not on the fare; you're paying twenty percent on everything.
5: That's right. That's right. So, so dependent, so, so there are two there are two um, uh, vendors uh, that run the taxi sy- system within New York City. One of them actually just charges on the base fare, uh, but the other vendor charges on both uh, the base fare uh, and then the surcharges or other charges that comes included.
2: And of course, you don't know that until you get into the cab and it's too late. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In the study that you've done, you see that most people do go for the 20%. Uh, most people do leave a tip most people don't stiff the driver, but how does that relate to everything else in their travel experience, do you think?
5: Well, uh, so, I mean, the first thing to uh, ask us as an economist is, why is someone actually giving you extra money um, uh, on top of the bill that you're supposed to actually pay, right? So, so that's sort of like the, the, the very first question to ask. Um, and, and and what's interesting is that neoclassical economics suggests that we, nobody should be doing that. And so and so from 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 my 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 training as an economist that completely is is counter to what neoclassical economics says. And so uh, the next question for me was like okay so like now let's figure out why people behave this way, right? Um and now you see that 97% of people are tipping do uh, you not step the driver well that suggests that there is a norm or there's something that's compelling people to actually leave um a tip within uh after 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 the affair well so then the next step for me was okay now if this is a norm this is a costly norm because you're actually giving uh, money to the driver and if that's the case, well, now let's think of a cap fare could be just three bucks or it could be $100. So how does tips actually vary um, across ac- across fares? And what you see there is that as the fare uh, uh, gets higher and higher, uh, the tip rate actually decreases, right? And so that tells us something. So let's say if Peter has an, in his mind, I want to pay 20%, I'd want to pay a 20% tip. If the cab ride is $10, that's $2. He's like, okay, fine, I'm going to do that. But then when the cab ride is $100, well, now 20% is going to be 20 bucks. And then Peter is going, well, I need to save some for lunch later, right? And so uh, Peter goes ahead and, and tips 12% as, as opposed to uh, 20%. And that essentially helps you. What that tells us is that even though there's a norm that's binding, um, there's some wiggle room in there. Like, you know, Peter is sort of trading off savings, for lunch later on versus abiding by this particular norm, right? Adhering to this norm. And so that's what helps me within uh, this context to sort of tease out what I call the norm deviation cost. So what is the cost to deviate in from what you believe to be the norm?
2: It's basically about human behavior and economic decision making, but it goes beyond that because I want to ask you about your own personal experiences, not about how much people are tipping, but who are the tippers? So you drove in that cab, everybody from Wall Street CEOs to strippers. Let me guess, let me guess, the strippers were bigger tippers. This is correct. Ah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: this is correct. Yes. Yeah, so, so there were a lot of interesting. Uh, uh, um, so, so I had preconceived notions as to what I was going to get as a tip, dependent on who I picked up, right? So, I drive down uh, to 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 uh, you know to Wall Street, and then you know a banker jumps in. You're on your phone, and you're talking about you know moving millions from from one account to the other account, and so you're thinking you know by the time this guy gets out of your cab, you're about to make a whole lot of money. Right, um, but you know, some of them actually get out without paying any tips. Uh, and then most of the time, the folks that you pick um, from—so let's say you you go in at night, or, or maybe at dawn, you pick up a stripper uh, who is going to Brooklyn or 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 the Bronx. You know, um, you talk to them, you 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 know, and and then they tell you about your life story. By the way, I also have a lot of stories about just picking up strippers and how you know interesting <laughs> those, those those stories are, but. They actually ended up giving you a lot of tips. Maybe the interpretation there is, you know, maybe a stripper gets tips also so they understand how important tips are to you. Maybe you pick up a doorman who is uh, uh, who works in a hotel downtown and tipping is a really, tips are a really huge part. Of where-
2: well, hold on a second. If you're picking up a doorman who works at a hotel downtown, he's the wealthiest guy at that hotel. He controls not just the tips from guests. He controls tips from cab drivers who are kicking back to him. Right for those rides to the airport. You know it, I know it.
5: This is true. So to go to LaGuardia you have to pay three bucks uh for, for, for one of the hotels that uh, uh, I, yeah. I used to pick up passengers. To go to JFK you had to pay seven dollars. Yeah. Uh, and the yeah. and
2: the and the hand signals, they used to do the hand signals, they'd let you know one finger meant LaGuardia, two fingers meant JFK. And if you oh, got Peter, the here you really, really know this. I know this, you bet I do. <laughs>
5: Wow, well, I guess you could be a, a cab driver, I mean, you do well because you know, you know the language you're at.
2: Yeah, but I don't only really want to pick up strippers, you know that. Because <laughs> now I know I get better tips. Come on. <laughs>
5: yeah, yeah. so so maybe there's something between the fact that I guess uh, uh, individuals or workers who found themselves in, uh, in service industries where they, they did get a tip wage had some sort of you know connection with a driver and understood what tips meant and so uh, therefore tipped more. Um, and then, and then, which is counter to what you would you would have expected.
2: Exactly, and now that dynamic changes again based on the economics of Uber and Lyft, because in New York City, for example, a twenty block ride in an Uber can be almost double what a ride is in a cab, and all of a sudden, my goodness, that changed the whole dynamic of everything.
5: That's right. It, 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 I know it's been it's been quite tough for the yellow cab industry because I'm still in contact with uh, the garage from which I used to lease yeah. uh, my, my, my cab from. And and uh, they've had a really tough time once Uber and then Lyft uh, got in.
2: My thanks to Quabina, to Dylan Thuris, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to PeterGreenberg.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but
5: as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Autotrader. Just you wait. Autotrader.
0: A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.